1: Gentlemen, let us begin. Welcome to The Great Man Podcast. It's a place where myself and Jay Kim, we come every other week to kind of decipher and dig into and unfold and unroll the podcast the previous week that Stephen has done. And this particular week, man, it was a big one. Yeah. And, and he's he spoken that old English thing. You notice he said, I've been reading some Shakespeare. So, you know, uh,
0: it, <laughs> I mean, the challenges me. It's like I, I don't read quite enough. And I feel like that's a big part of just pursuing great manhood is, is you got to being well read. You, yeah. You got to have, you know, different things. And he's reading Shakespeare. Yeah. So. Varied interest. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We do need to we do need to concentrate on being a renaissance man of mm. sorts.
0: We will be doing this podcast in iambic pentameter today. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're going to do the
1: notes in Latin. <laughs> but, you know, let's let's get into it a bit, Jay. So this, I, I don't really know where to go with this one, man, because I'm examining my life like I do every time mm-hmm. I listen to Stephen. So the first thing I do is I listen through it and then I listen through it again. And I go, where can I apply this to my life? Where are these wounds in my life? Where are these issues, these barnacles stuck to my shell, stuck to my hull. And I'm just looking at my life, man, really thinking about it because I'm coming to that age of what Steven was talking about, man. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, mid-50s and I just turned 59, man, a few weeks ago. And so I'm coming to that age where, man, where I'm very reflective and thinking back on everything, man, just wondering how I could have done it better or what's got a hold of me and and all of that. How's any of that resonate with you being such a youngster? I mean, you're just- <laughs> <What>? <laughs> You just barely forty years old. Oh,
0: come on! Um, All right, <laughs> I'm gonna turn forty-one in a uh, two months. But, All right,
1: uh... You think it's a generational thing, man? Do you think that we wait, or that that it just happens later in life, where a man just kind of sits around and begins to take account, mm. or do you think that there are younger guys able to key in on this and then discuss it? Because did you notice where, where Stephen was talking about that he sat in front of or with some of the greatest men in the last 50 years? Just a little flex, yeah. Yeah. Princes, presidents, kings, kings, presidents, prime ministers. Yeah. You know, and, and that says a lot, man, about Stephen's influence and in the circle that he's gathered around him. Now, he was honest. He said he didn't know them all specifically but he's been in the company or in conversation with those kinds of men. So he's got a wide gamut of guys to kind of look at and just draw these conclusions. What do do you think about this thing? Also, as a historian,
0: he gets to know. Oh, that's true. He he gets to know them too. But just seeing how they handle themselves, you know, in person as well, uh, I think it's really, really fascinating because I think every man kind of deals with these little barnacles, you know, these little petty things that kind of stick to them. I think the earlier you recognize it, the earlier you go into it, the more like all wisdom, the better it is for you. And I think that as young men, we could just glory in that stuff. You know, we could be like, pick up every petty thing and it doesn't actually phase us until years and years of it accumulating for me at 40. I'm starting to get to that point where, Oh, some of this stuff is going to really bog me down. So I'm, I'm, glad that i could now examine that right now yeah and sort of look through my life because a lot of it's blind spots i know man and that's the problem with it man i mean it's stuff
1: that you don't see and then if you don't see it and someone doesn't call it out you don't necessarily know about it and then someone like steven begins to talk to us about it and Mm. then we have to get introspective and start to examining our lives and i'm in the middle of that honestly man because i want to know if i have these things and i've asked my wife and you know that's the first thing he goes go and ask your wife. And I asked my wife and she goes, I can't put my finger on anything that is currently attached to you that I feel like is, is causing something. But a lot of that stuff, I don't know that people would be able to tell us because they don't know our intimate lives, man. They don't, they don't know our soulish part of ourselves as intimately as we do. So it's going to take some self-examination. I don't really know how to get there yet, man.
0: Yeah. I I think, I think we were talking about it earlier, finding out, a lot of these petty things that accumulate are a result of a big thing. Right. You know, like for me, it was, you know, when I had hyperthyroid and I was constantly relentlessly ridiculed. As soon as that was done, I made an unholy vow to myself that I would never let anybody make me feel that way again. Yeah. And to this day it's still a struggle because that's where all the defensiveness comes that's where a lot of the pettiness that i let accumulate a lot of the things is like that person thinks i'm stupid so i'm gonna make him feel stupid yeah that was my mo for so long and i think a good way to kind of go about it is maybe examine what's the source of this what was the big event that caused all these small events to accumulate and when you do that it it is a way you could just extrapolate you're like okay well what could have possibly resulted from from that you know and it things will come up to your mind and i think that's the value of doing the control room regularly because in your control room you'll find a lot of things that you weren't looking at you know and then you take that to your band of brothers and they'll be like well here's some more yeah (laughs) You know, the
1: example that he gave of the guy, the good friend of his, and he was shorter in statue and mm. had these things and grew up with this group of brothers. And, the, and he he didn't realize it. But some of the little remarks that they made while growing up, you know, European, you're small, you're not graded athletically, all these kinds of things, they uh, they impacted him. And I guess he. When we fight against a negative rather than fighting for a positive, I think we get a lot of negative results, man. And so he's doing everything he can to not be a peon. He's doing everything he can to show that he's not weaker in sports or not this or not that. And that's one thing that that really shook me a bit. And something else that before I forget, man, you know, when when he was talking about sitting down with these great men uh, all around the world, he said that they were warriors on the outside but like monks on the inside and having tuned in to this serial forgiveness, this serial, I'm not going to let things touch me. I'm not going to hang on to things. I'm not going to hold you accountable for mm-hmm. this forever. And, you know, it's really one of the greatest compliments I think that I could get or that I could give a man that's been through something. Uh, and, and I remember uh, there's a, there's a pastor, his name is uh pastor Rice Brooks. And he is known for being a serial forgiver, people that know him because they've walked with him so long in the offenses. And any time that you have a great platform, people are always saying things to strike out at you are misunderstood. But they say that he doesn't waste time dwelling and trying to get back. He just forgives them and moves on. And that's a place, man, it's, it sounds a lot easier than it really is, but man, we have to get in this habit of, of wanting to shed these things immediately. Mm-hmm. When we receive an offense, we, ha- we can't relish in it and just want to sit in it and absorb it and think of the 10, 15 different angles that it's attacked us in. We have to decide right away, I'm going to forgive them and keep
0: going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I like that too. Part of what you're talking about, like active forgiveness a big reason why men get bogged down and and let these things attach to them is because of passivity. Mm. You know, if you're just going to be passive and allow things to happen and don't do anything about them, like with this, you have to actively forgive. You Mm. have to intentionally go, okay, I've got an offense and it, it might be petty and it's, you know, stuck to me do i need to forgive and i have to do it intentionally yeah every time and we're all looking for a solution that'll be plug and play you don't have to do anything yeah. just leave it and you'll be fine you know find a solution to life where once you do this this and this it's smooth sailing but the truth is great manhood requires you to be intentional to be active and yeah that kind of like i'm gonna forgive i'm gonna choose to forgive for these small offenses
1: yeah and you know something else that is and he's Steven's great at this is drawing these mind pictures he took the the uh the scene out of a christmas carol and he talked about uh the spirit coming back and being bogged down with all of these chains and then coming to realize that he had actually crafted these chains out of the his behavior and the things that he held on to and the things that he didn't scrape off the hull mm-hmm. through his entire life so it takes some time for that to happen i guess so maybe that's why it's a it's a A faculty of the older generation, like older men are more prone to this or or maybe as we get older, we get more honest with ourselves uh, and just begin to talk about it. But I thought it was interesting that he was talking about change, man, because, you know, offenses are everywhere. And then a large offenses, man, you mentioned that you think that maybe it's these petty things that come along to get you when you hang on to one of these larger offenses. Are there larger offenses in your life? Because I, I can think of a quite a few men. Here's one, actually, and it's not a large offense. I can remember being, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, man. And I got a nickname, and everybody wants a nickname unless it's a bad nickname. And so I don't I don't want a bad nickname and I don't want you to say a bad nickname in front of my other friends, but I'm probably 15, 16 years old. And I had a group of five guys and he came up with a nickname that was incredibly demeaning to me. And 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 Jay, the nickname was he, he would look at me and call me Gobble Daddy, Gobble Daddy. And he was saying Gobble Daddy because he said that I used to eat a lot and that's why I was fat. <laughs> And so, man, I'm walking around in my life, 15, 16 years old, thinking that I'm this huge fat guy, man. And yeah. when I look back at my pictures at 14, 15, 16, 17, I'm actually really slim, man, like in just a regular-sized guy, no fat, just a regular-sized guy. But that gave me, because I hung on to what he said, I gave yeah. it power in my life. I began to struggle with this self-image thing that even until – Four or five years ago, man, that I was still dealing with trying to avoid being called gobbledaddy. And it has caused weight issues in my life because mm. I feel like that I eat out of some insecurity. Yeah. So I'm constantly battling my weight here at 59 years old, man.
0: You gotta appreciate the creativity though. <laughs> oh, <laughs> in my dude, come my on. childhood, they just call you fat. They just mm-hmm. be like, fat so He's a gobble daddy.
1: Yeah, because I used to gobble all the food down. (laughs) Gobble daddy. Do you have moments in your life, man, that you could track back to being young? Now, I know that people uh, used to ridicule you for the condition that you had. Is there something specific, man, like uh, relationally or maybe with your mom, your dad, your sister? Uh, a leader, a coach, a pastor—just anybody back in the day, man—that said something that really stuck with you, and you feel like that it's something you probably should have scraped off your shoe back then rather than just riding with it.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people have this common experience, but like, you know, I, I went through a phase in, you know, college where I was just kind of drifting, wasn't really studying too hard or getting good grades. I wasn't I, I would rather just sit and play video games. All yeah. So like I feel like everybody can relate to having their dad come down and be like if you do go this way you'll never amount to anything. You're going to be a loser for the rest of your life because right now what you're doing makes you a loser. And did he tell you like that? Yeah. He well, told you in, just like that. In a, so my dad, you know Or is that the way you heard it? Um uh, mm, it's a little more violent <laughs> than that actually because he's you know, he used to be a, a master Taekwondo instructor okay. for the Korean military. So he would go into a field of a thousand guys and just yell. So when he talks to you, when he's he's yelling at you, your him, father, It's like, "You're a loser. What you're doing? This is loser behavior. You know. And if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to be a loser for the rest of your life. And I mean, his he was right, but at the same time, it does stick with you you know that kind of for most guys it might be motivational for me it was the opposite
1: yeah i don't know if it's if there's really any guy that being (laughs) called a loser is gonna be motivating man i mean and it it motivates you in the sense of if we're defending a negative you know i i want to prove this because that's what you said about i want to prove that you know i'm not dumb i want to prove that i'm not this i want to prove to my dad that i'm not stupid so i'm not I don't. I don't know that that's a healthy way, man. Because if you had kids today, Jay, which we're getting ready to find out what's going on, but Duh. in the in the event that you have kids, man, and you're raising your son, is that a legitimate way that you're going to address your son?
0: I. I hope not. Yeah. But I understand where he's coming from because he wants the best for me. Yeah. And he's like, this path will only lead to failure, and I don't want my son to be a failure. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't communicate it that way.
1: You know, it's funny, man, and own parents and raising our children and all those kinds of things, there's a difference in, and and I tell people this all the time, you need your father, your mother, and you need an outside mentor because a lot of the things that fathers and mothers say, and not all fathers and mothers, but a lot of things that we say as fathers and mothers, they're literally built out of fear. We see a behavior in our children and we want to knock it out. Like if we don't snatch them up and and beat it out of them with a with a belt. I mean, we're going to say what we mean in such a, a derogatory way that it shocks the whole scene because we're going, hey, this is going to take you down the wrong road. And rather than taking the simple 30 minute conversation, maybe to explain to them why it's taking them down this road. We want to have the most impact with the fewest amount of words. And and a lot of times, man, we're working out of this fear because we see our kids and we extrapolate out that you're going to end up destitute and on the side of the road. And I don't want that for you. So I need to shock you out of it. Whereas a mentor, when they look in and see your life and the you know, behavior and all that, the first things that they're looking at, they want to accentuate what you do well. Mm -hmm. So they want to talk about those things that you do. Well, if you talk about and get excited about the things that you do well enough, it'll crowd out the stuff, man, that's taking you away from your destiny or away from your ideal in life. And that's the value, in my opinion, man, of having a mentor, having more than one mentor and having your parents as well, because sometimes, man, we can be so emotionally connected to the situation that the way that we speak like your father you know, he's, he's got the best that he's got in mind for you, but yet and still, the verbiage that he uses sticks with you. And I can mm-hmm. imagine that that motivated you to do some things differently.
0: And that fear and urgency that comes, with, you know, being a parent, that there's enough distance in the mentor relationship for that to not actually be a factor, you know, where they can objectively look at your life and be like, well, this is where you're great. We need to develop this. And yeah. here's where you're weak. We need to work on that. And it's not an issue of like, I'm worried about your future where you're going to. I mean, a mentor can be, but they're not going to be that invested where they're fearful, you know? Yeah. And it becomes like an urgent, I need to change this boy before, you know, he goes the wrong path.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think of another, and I've talked about my life and, and just some of the wounds in my life previously on the podcast, but just to give you a quick overview, you know, when I was. Very young, I was sexually abused. And then again, about eight or 10 years later, sexually abused. And then my mom kind of abused me in in numerous ways, man. I mean, emotionally, uh, physically. Sometimes I was beat until I thought that I might lose my consciousness. Uh, She hit me with just anything that she could find, meaning uh, whips, uh, rope, uh, extension cards, all these kinds of things, all these different beatings. And then there was this always this sense of angst in my household. So I'm constantly trying to pick up cues on where we stand at any given day just for my own safety. And I realized, man, that picking up all of that and learning how to navigate those situations, it's really made me conscious of what's going on around me and the way that people may look. And it could be an errant look. Or it could be, you know, an errant facial expression. But I'm always picking up on all these things, and I internalize it all and overthink it, and go, "I've done something." Yeah, I've I've done something, and how am I going to get out of this? And it it really wrecked early relationships for me. It wrecked uh, relationships with my children early on, uh, caused a lot of turmoil in my marriage. Man, dealing with just these circumstances, all these different things that I took and attached to myself and said, this is a reality. You know, just sitting here and chatting with you about this subject, man, it's reflecting and making me go back and think about some of the things because, you know, I can remember times too, man, that because of the abuses, you know, I always felt like that sex was the ultimate in communication. Like it it is the way you can tell me that you love me and you can show me that you love me and you can behave as though you love me. But if we're not having sex every day, mm, I don't know that you love me. And it's curious because I was abused sexually, Mm. but I translated somehow sex to be this communication of caring and love. So I, I don't really know how I got off on that, but I just want us all to contemplate, man, those those wounds in our lives and those offenses in our lives and what we do with them. Cause I've come to come to terms with most of that and had a chance to discuss it with my mom before she passed on, you know. I remember a time that I walked in a room and my mom was going through my stepfather's pants. He was asleep. And I don't know what she was looking for, if she was looking for evidence or something of something, or if she was looking for cash. I don't know. But immediately in my heart, man, I go, women are very deceitful and mm. dishonest. And you could think that there is something good in this woman, but ultimately behind your back, they're doing this. And it made me, I hung on to that one incident. I have no no way of knowing what was actually going on. If he had told her to do it, I don't know. But it made me have this opinion of women my entire life, man, up until my 30s, man, That women were scandalous and insincere and couldn't be trusted and go through your things and looking for evidence on you and stuff like that, man. You know, I mean, I'm just thinking about all these things now that we're discussing are uh, these offenses and small things that we hang on to
0: and it can structure and cause us to
1: behave a certain way.
0: Yeah. I think also the defense mechanisms that you had up too, and also that, that mindset that you had, they all result in these little things that we pick up in our our many relationships you know how you see women it affects your relationships yeah and i know for me how i i was behaving you know this sort of defensive you're not gonna not gonna make me feel ridiculed ever again it definitely hurt my relationships and it's the one thing that kept my courtship to my wife so it it went nine years because yeah. I was just I couldn't actually function well in that relationship until you know I was forced to face it.
1: You know, man, that's one thing, and I'll I'll tell you now, and I've told you this before, man, but but wait, to, wait to hang in there, dude, because you know, and you've told me, man, that friends were like, you know, why are you still hanging around, and why this, and why that, but man, I can remember you going through that and just the drag. The whole situation was on your relationship, man, just not knowing where to go and not knowing how to fix it and not knowing exactly what was wrong and not knowing, you know, if it would ultimately work out. And then coming to this place, man, where you guys begin to go get counseling and reconciling and working out a lot of that stuff, man. But I'm still like amazed that you two waited for each other for nine years.
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to marry her and Yeah, like, <laughs> from the minute I met her. I wanted to marry her. And one of the turning point was like all these small things accumulated in me to the point where I suffered a little bit of depression. And my primary care doctor was the one saying, you have to go seek therapy. And then they referred me and I went and I I started to examine all the little things that had accumulated. And that's what it was. It was depression was me not addressing any of these things. And it just, just. Pushed me down. All these changes dragged me down and like inexplicably, like I couldn't function.
1: You said something powerful the other day when we were talking, you said that this behavior of like preemptively putting somebody back in their place. If you if you felt the 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 smallest bit of them trying to make you look bad or make you look this or this them disagreeing with you, that you feel like it's cost you so much Not only in your personal relationships, but in your workplace relationships, professional uh, job that you do and just across all spectrum of life.
0: Yeah, there's nothing that'll make you look the fool more in a professional environment when you're given feedback and you cannot receive it and you do everything possible to push the buck somewhere else. And that was me. That was me. Anytime it got to a point where it wasn't even just somebody was saying something to ridicule me, I was feeling like it was becoming a situation where I would look bad. Right. And I would just publicly to the manager or to the boss or the director be like, no, no, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. You know, like you did this or whatever. I would just point the finger and yeah, I lost a lot of jobs that way. I lost a lot of opportunities to work with people and, I'm, I'm in the film industry, so that's 100% relationships. Yeah. And i cut off a lot of relationships because I was afraid of being ridiculed.
1: I think it's one of the most like uh, frustrating things there is as a leader and to have people around you is to go and address a thing to someone and they just pretend like they don't hear you and make every explanation, or every, ex- every excuse, a point to other people. And, and try and tell you, this is, this is what you're looking for. That's what you're looking for over there. But it wasn't me. I did what I was supposed to do. And immediately, man, it makes you draw like a conclusion about this person is they're not ready to leave. They're not, they're not a great person either. Cause they're not big enough to admit when they've done something. And clearly this was your responsibility. I'm checking you up on it and asking you why it didn't get done, but you're telling me it's somebody else. It's one of those things like in a marriage like you recording it's i think it's probably one of the telltale signs for a bride or for a groom if they go and try and address something with someone that they love and they're not willing to hear it or receive it there's a frustration built into that yeah and you're and you're going to know that man it's going to be a high probability that we're never going to be able to work anything out because every time i bring up something that bothers me it's going to be
0: defended yeah, and when my wife and I were working on our communication, we're working on how to deal with situations like this, I would tell her, I'd be like, you're the only person I do this with. I don't have the bandwidth to do this with anyone else. And the truth is to do it to do it properly? Yeah, to to make sure that she's heard, make sure that I turn towards her, that I'm not defensive, that I'm But I'm like beginning to realize when I get in my control room and I start examining my life and like that realization that I told you the other day about professionally, how much this hurt me, that came in the control room Mm. because I I wouldn't know that. That's a huge blind spot to me. If I lost a job or if I lost a relationship or an opportunity, it was always their fault. Like they're missing out. They screwed up. But when I looked at it, I was like, no, no. When somebody does this behavior and I've observed somebody else do it and go, that's that's really unprofessional. Yeah. But like, that's what I'm doing all the time. Yeah, You know, just trying to push the buck and like the most professional and mature thing to do in that situation is to take that feedback and ask more. Be like, hey, give me more. I need to know more details about what what this feedback is, you know, but I was like, don't give me that. Don't even come to me with that. (laughs) like I'm perfect you don't need to do anything
1: so did any of those bosses or any of those people that you've worked with ever have the ability to like verbalize what it was you were doing or is this something that you're just coming
0: to understand yourself after years of dealing with it yeah I I think this was a recent thing uh, after listening to this podcast (laughs) no way after listening to the talk and thinking it through I'm like man my behavior is highly unprofessional because I do not take feedback well mm. you know i it's been different i've been able to take feedback but there's always been an edge to it you know where i would always point out what the person was giving me feedback what they did wrong as well
1: yeah that doesn't work in a marriage either. no it
0: doesn't so <laughs>
1: yeah that that works but, really poorly in a marriage
0: you know and it's gotten great because i have i have great co-workers okay but the thing is is they've learned to approach me carefully
1: so they have a measure of grace for you. Yeah. And it's helping you work through whatever it is that yeah. you're dealing with.
0: It's like, what can I do to make this work? And it's like, I should be saying that. That's the more mature, that's the that's the great manhood approach is what what can I do to, to improve this? Yeah.
1: You know, sitting down with a guy, man and just breaching a topic like this, like there's always value in it and we can just start to think and and uh one of the things I guess that I would suggest when you do breach a topic like this, man, that you're going to have to open up a free space for guys to just kind of ruminate and go here and go from a to Z from 99 to negative 10, just all these different places. And a lot of times, man, we do our best work, man. When we don't say a word mm. when we sit down with a guy in a control room and just kind of pose a question and let the guy go on and on and on. And then we are able to share some of the things that's coming up for us, man. So the control room is a big part of where this stuff is worked out, but it definitely affects our lives. And, you know, and, and the last thing that I'll talk about kind of personally, man, from about 19 to 30, I was uh, living a very illegal life, man. I was in the drugs, selling drugs, uh, smoked weed every day, like a an ounce, probably a day. Uh, I lived in a way, man, that was very despicable. And I've done some things, man, to break down households and, a uh, community literally one whole community uh, where we where we did all this dirty and man, it broke that community down. And it's only just recently in the last 10 or 12 years uh, began to recover. But, you know, as a result of that, I've got to know a lot of police officers and I got to spend some time in jail cells. And I can remember, man, that there was a saying that when you're locked up is that anytime you get out on parole or probation, you have one foot in and you have one foot out. So whatever little wiggle you make, it's, it's just set up to send you straight back. And I can remember like after getting past that point in my life, man, feeling a few things. One was I'm never gonna be good enough to be of value to wider society because of the way that I lived, which was a lie. I'm never gonna be able to get a job to really sustain myself and a family because of the way I lived. You know, ex-convict, ex-felon. I'm never going to be able to do this. And these are things that I'm picking up as I'm in these different jail cells, man, understanding that what I'm doing has consequences. And so I I do know, man, that I've always uh, had this inclination to look for approval out of the leadership around me. And, you know, I guess up till about 15 years ago, man, I really recognized that that was Uh, maybe some approval that I didn't get from my father. And I'm hoping to get it from these men around me or these leaders around me. But man, all of these things and the way that we live our lives, man, it all affects us. And chances are we're picking up and holding on to a lot more than we feel like we're holding on to. And it's going to move us and direct us and cause us to behave in ways, man, that are mostly negative in our lives until we get healed from those wounds, man.
0: Yeah, like it, it's a general sentiment we we talk a lot about in our men's ministry at our, the church that we serve and we say if you're going to be passive, if you're not going to deal with these wounds, you're not going to deal with these issues, you're going to weave a path of destruction toward against your family, against your 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 community, against your friends. Yeah. And it's like until you become intentional, until you become intentional about the things in your life that's when you can turn around and not be a, a weapon of destruction against those you love. And that's what we strive for. That's what we're trying to reach men for. Yeah. So also I was thinking about, you know, when the boat has too many barnacles, has too many, too much has gone wrong with the, with the hull of the boat, it has to go into dry dock. You know, it has to get out of the water and elevated so that they can, they can do the, the, scraping and and welding sometimes because the damage is too too great and i think as men oftentimes when we when we stop and we examine all the barnacles in our life all the what the damage they've done we have to kind of get out of the water for a bit and get into dry dock and get healing yeah you know get get with your your band of brothers and get into your control room you know that's curious that you say that too because a really
1: good friend of mine has dropped everything and, and, and that's a good picture for me to think of is that he's taken this opportunity to get in dry dock and be able to scrape off these barnacles and all these other things that have attached themselves to him. So that's, that's a good thing. So when we see that in a guy's life, man, we really need to facilitate that. You know, this is, this has been great Jay. And thanks for spending some time with me. And we want to remember that we need to be done with the lesser things, man. And, and uh, I, I still think you should have played that hymn at the beginning of the podcast. But you know, just getting rid of these small barnacles, these small things that attach themselves to us and cause us to behave and act out and move way in ways that we normally would not. There's there's time to examine those, and the time is right now, man. So get in the the control room with a good friend, or get in there by yourself, a pray through it. You know, even the scripture says that it's the smaller foxes that ruin the vines. It's not the big attack that comes on the vine where an animal runs through a portion of the vine. It's all the little tiny foxes eating a tiny bit and destroying a tiny bit of the vine that ultimately destroys that vine. And we need to think of ourselves like that because that's in, in the scripture, uh, that's kind of how God uh, talks about our relationship with him as a being a vine in a vineyard. But I just want to thank you all for showing up today. And getting rid of these smaller things is one of the great parts of being a great man.
0: To join the great man community or to book Stephen to speak at your man's event, go to greatman.tv. There, you'll also find incredible resources to help you become the great man you are made to be. The Great Man Podcast is a Wise Company production.